Section 16 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 24 Mr. Gladstone. The debate was one of the finest of its kind ever heard in Parliament during our time. The excitement on both sides was intense. The rivalry was hot and eager. Mr. Disraeli was animated by all the power of desperation and was evidently in a mood neither to give nor to take quarter. He assailed Sir Charles Wood, the late Chancellor of the Exchequer, with a vehemence and even a virulence which certainly added much to the piquancy and interest of the discussion so far as listeners were concerned, but which more than once went to the very verge of the limits of parliamentary decorum. It was in the course of this speech that Disraeli, leaning across the table and directing his words full at Sir Charles Wood, declared, I care not to be the right honorable gentleman's critic, but if he has learned his business, he has yet to learn that petulance is not sarcasm and that insolence is not invective. The House had not heard the concluding word of Disraeli's bitter and impassioned speech when at two o'clock in the morning Mr. Gladstone leaped to his feet to answer him. Then began that long parliamentary duel which only knew a truce when, at the close of the session of 1876, Mr. Disraeli crossed the threshold of the House of Commons for the last time, thenceforward to take his place among the peers as Lord Beaconsfield. During all the intervening four and twenty years, these two men were rivals in power and in parliamentary debate as much as ever Pitt and Fox had been. Their opposition, like that of Pitt and Fox, was one of temperament and character, as well as of genius, position, and political opinion. The rivalry of this first heated and eventful night was a splendid display. Those who had thought it impossible that any impression could be made upon the House after the speech of Mr. Disraeli had to acknowledge that a yet greater impression was produced by the unprepared reply of Mr. Gladstone. The House divided about four o'clock in the morning, and the government were left in a minority of nineteen. Mr. Disraeli took the defeat with his characteristic composure. The morning was cold and wet. It will be an unpleasant day for going to Osborne, he quietly remarked to a friend as they went down Westminster Hall together and looked out into the dreary streets. That day at Osborne, the resignation of the ministry was formally placed in the hands of the Queen. In a few days after, the coalition ministry was formed. Lord Aberdeen was Prime Minister. Lord John Russell took the Foreign Office, Lord Palmerston became Home Secretary, Mr. Gladstone was Chancellor of the Exchequer. The public were a good deal surprised that Lord Palmerston had taken such a place as that of Home Secretary. His name had been identified with the foreign policy of England, and it was not supposed that he felt the slightest interest in the ordinary business of the Home Department. Palmerston himself explained in a letter to his brother that the Home Office was his own choice. He was not anxious to join the Ministry at all, and if he had to make one, he preferred that he should have some office in which he had personally no traditions. I had long settled in my own mind, he said, that I would not go back to the Foreign Office, and that if I ever took any office, it would be the Home. It does not do for a man to pass his whole life in one department 
and the Home Office deals with the concerns of the country internally, and brings one in contact with one's fellow countrymen, besides which it gives one more influence in regard to the militia and the defences of the country. Lord Palmerston, in fact, announces that he has undertaken the business of the Home Office for the same reason as that given by Fritz in the Grand Duchesse for becoming a schoolmaster. Can you teach? asks the Grand Duchesse. No, is the answer. C'est pour apprendre. I go to learn. The reader may well suspect, however, that it was not only with a view of learning the business of the internal administration and becoming acquainted with his fellow countrymen that Palmerston preferred the Home Office. He would not consent to be Foreign Secretary on any terms but his own, and these terms were then out of the question. The principal interest felt in the new government was not, however, centred in Lord Palmerston. The new Chancellor of the Exchequer was the man upon whom the eyes of curiosity and interest were chiefly turned. Mr. Gladstone was still a young man in the parliamentary sense, at least. He was but forty-three. His career had been in every way remarkable. He had entered public life at a very early age. He had been, to quote the words of Macaulay, a distinguished debater in the House of Commons ever since he was one and twenty. Criticizing his book, The State, in its relations with the Church, which was published in 1838, Macaulay speaks of Gladstone as a young man of unblemished character and of distinguished parliamentary talents, the rising hope of those stern and unbending Tories, who follow reluctantly and mutinously a leader whose experience is indispensable to them, but whose cautious temper and moderate opinions they abhor. The time was not so far away when the stern and unbending Tories would regard Gladstone as the greatest hope of their most bitter enemies. Lord Macaulay goes on to overwhelm the views expressed by Mr. Gladstone as to the relations between state and church with a weight of argument and gorgeousness of illustration that now seems to have been hardly called for. One of the doctrines of the young statesman which Macaulay confutes with a special warmth is the principle which, as he states it, would give the Irish a Protestant church whether they like it or not. The author of the book which contained this doctrine was the author of the disestablishment of the state church in Ireland. Mr. Gladstone was by birth a Lancashire man. It is not unworthy of notice that Lancashire gave to the parliaments of recent times their three greatest orators, Mr. Gladstone, Mr. Bright, and the late Lord Derby. Mr. Gladstone was born in Liverpool and was the son of Sir John Gladstone, a Scotchman, who founded a great house in the seaport of the Mersey. He entered Parliament when very young as a protégé of the Newcastle family, and he soon faithfully attached himself to Sir Robert Peel. His knowledge of finance, his thorough appreciation of the various needs of a nation's commerce and business, his middle-class origin, all brought him into natural affinity with his great leader. He became a free trader with Peel. He was not in the House of Commons, oddly enough, during the session when the free trade battle was fought and won. It has already been explained in this history that as he had changed his opinions with his leader, he felt a reluctance to ask the support of the Newcastle family for the borough, which by virtue of their influence he had previously represented. But except for that short interval, his whole career may be pronounced one long parliamentary success. He was from the very first recognized as a brilliant debater. 
as one who promised to be an orator, but it was not until after the death of Sir Robert Peel that he proved himself the master of parliamentary eloquence we all now know him to be. It was he who pronounced what may be called the funeral oration upon Peel in the House of Commons, but the speech, although undoubtedly inspired by the truest and the deepest feelings, does not seem by any means equal to some of his more recent efforts. There is an appearance of elaboration about it which goes far to mar its effect. Perhaps the first really great speech made by Gladstone was the reply to Disraeli on the memorable December morning which we have just described. That speech put him in the very foremost rank of English orators. Then perhaps he first showed to the full the one great quality in which, as a parliamentary orator, he has never had a rival in our time, the readiness which seems to require no preparation, but can marshal all its arguments as if by instinct at a given moment, and the fluency which can pour out the most eloquent language as freely as though it were but the breath of the nostrils. When shortly after the formation of the coalition ministry, Mr. Gladstone delivered his first budget, it was regarded as a positive curiosity of financial exposition. It was a performance that belonged to the Department of the Fine Arts. The speech occupied several hours, and assuredly no listener wished it the shorter by a single sentence. Pitt, we read, had the same art of making a budget speech a fascinating discourse. But in our time no minister has had this gift except Mr. Gladstone. Each time that he essayed the same task subsequently, he accomplished just the same success. Mr. Gladstone's first oratorical qualification was his exquisite voice. Such a voice would make commonplace seem interesting and lend something of a fascination to dullness itself. It was singularly pure, clear, resonant, and sweet. The orator never seemed to use the slightest effort or strain in filling any hall and reaching the ear of the farthest among the audience. It was not a loud voice or of great volume, but strong, vibrating, and silvery. The words were always aided by energetic action and by the deep, gleaming eyes of the orator. Somebody once said that Gladstone was the only man in the house who could talk in italics. The saying was odd but was nevertheless appropriate and expressive. Gladstone could, by the slightest modulation of his voice, give all the emphasis of italics, of small print, of large print, or any other effect he might desire to his spoken words. It is not to be denied that his wonderful gift of words sometimes led him astray. It was often such a fluency as that of a torrent on which the orator was carried away. Gladstone had to pay for his fluency by being too fluent. He could seldom resist the temptation to shower too many words on his subject and his hearers. Sometimes he involved his sentence in parenthesis within parenthesis, until the ordinary listener began to think explication an impossibility. But the orator never failed to unravel all the entanglements and to bring the passage out to a clear and legitimate conclusion. There was never any halt or incoherency, nor did the joints of the sentence fail to fit together in the right way. Harley once described a famous speech as a circumgyration of incoherent words. This description certainly could not be applied even to Mr. Gladstone's most involved passages, 
but if some of those were described as a circumgyration of coherent words, the phrase might be considered germane to the matter. His style was commonly too redundant. It seemed as if it belonged to a certain school of exuberant Italian rhetoric, yet it was hardly to be called florid. Gladstone indulged in few flowers of rhetoric, and his great gift was not imagination. His fault was simply the habitual use of too many words. This defect was indeed a characteristic of the Peelite school of eloquence. Mr. Gladstone retained some of the defects of the school in which he had been trained, even after he had come to surpass its greatest master. Often, however, this superb exuberant rush of words added indescribable strength to the eloquence of the speaker. In passages of indignant remonstrance or denunciation, when word followed word and stroke came down upon stroke with a wealth of resource that seemed inexhaustible, the very fluency and variety of the speaker overwhelmed his audience. Interruption only gave him a new stimulus and appeared to supply him with fresh resources of argument and illustration. His retorts leaped to his lips. His eye caught sometimes even the mere gesture that indicated dissent or question, and perhaps some unlucky opponent who was only thinking of what might be said in opposition to the great orator found himself suddenly dragged into the conflict and overwhelmed with a torrent of remonstrance, argument, and scornful words. Gladstone had not much humor of the playful kind, but he had a certain force of sarcastic and scornful rhetoric. He was always terribly in earnest. Whether the subject were great or small, he threw his whole soul into it. Once in addressing a schoolboy gathering, he told his young listeners that if a boy ran, he ought always to run as fast as he could. If he jumped, he ought always to jump as far as he could. He illustrated his maxim in his own career. He had no idea, apparently, of running or jumping in such measure as happened to please the fancy of the moment. He always exercised his splendid powers to the uttermost strain. A distinguished critic once pronounced Mr. Gladstone to be the greatest parliamentary orator of our time, on the ground that he made by far the greatest number of fine speeches, while admitting that two or three speeches had been made by other men of the day, which might rank higher than any of his. This is, however, a principle of criticism which posterity never sanctions. The greatest speech, the greatest poem, give the author the highest place, though the effort were but single. Shakespeare would rank beyond Massinger just as he does now had he written only The Tempest. We cannot say how many novels as good as Gil Blas would make Le Sage the equal of Cervantes. On this point, fame is inexorable. We are not therefore inclined to call Mr. Gladstone the greatest English orator of our time, when we remember some of the finest speeches of Mr. Bright, but did we regard parliamentary speaking as a mere instrument of parliamentary business and debate, then unquestionably Mr. Gladstone is not only the greatest, but by far the greatest English orator of our time, for he had a richer combination of gifts than any other man we can remember, and he could use them oftenest with effect. He was like a racer which cannot indeed always go faster than every rival, but can win more races in the year than any other horse. Mr. Gladstone could get up at any moment, and no matter how many times a night, in the House of Commons, and be argumentative or indignant, pour out a stream of impassioned eloquence or a shower of figures, 
just as the exigency of the debate in the moment required. He was not, of course, always equal, but he was always eloquent and effective. He seemed as if he could not be anything but eloquent. Perhaps judged in this way, he never had an equal in the English Parliament. Neither Pitt nor Fox ever made so many speeches, combining so many great qualities. Chatham was a great actor rather than a great orator. Burke was the greatest political essayist who ever addressed the House of Commons. Canning did not often rise above the level of burnished rhetorical commonplace. Macaulay, who during his time drew the most crowded houses of any speaker, not even excepting Peel, was not an orator in the true sense. Probably no one, past or present, had in combination so many gifts of voice, manner, fluency and argument, style, reason and passion as Mr. Gladstone. The House of Commons was his ground. There he was himself. There he was always seen to the best advantage. As a rule, he was not so successful on the platform. His turn of mind did not fit him well for the work of addressing great public meetings. He loved to look too carefully at every side of a question, and did not always go so quickly to the heart of it as would suit great popular audiences. The principal defect of his mind was probably a lack of simplicity, a tendency to over-refining and super-subtle argument. Not perhaps unnaturally, however, when he did, during some of the later passages of his career, lay himself out for the work of addressing popular audiences, he threw away all discrimination and gave loose to the full force with which, under the excitement of great pressure, he was wont to rush at a principle. There seemed a certain lack of balance in his mind, a want of the exact poise of all his faculties. Either he must refine too much, or he did not refine at all. Thus he became accused, and with some reason, of over-refining, and all but quibbling, in some of his parliamentary arguments, of looking at all sides of a question so carefully that it was too long in doubt whether he was ever going to form any opinion of his own, and he was sometimes accused with equal justice of pleading one side of a political cause before great meetings of his countrymen with all the passionate blindness of a partisan. The accusations might seem self-contradictory if we did not remember that they will apply, and with great force and justice, to Burke. Burke cut blocks with a razor and went on refining to an impatient House of Commons only eager for its dinner, and the same Burke threw himself into antagonism to the French Revolution as if he were the wildest of partisans, as if the question had but one side and only fools or villains could possibly say it had any other. Mr. Gladstone grew slowly into liberal convictions. At the time when he joined the coalition ministry, he was still regarded as one who had scarcely left the camp of Toryism, and who had only joined that ministry because it was a coalition. Years after, he was applied to by the late Lord Derby to join a ministry formed by him, and it was not supposed that there was anything unreasonable in the proposition. The first impulse toward liberal principles was given to his mind probably by his change with his leader from protection to free trade. When a man like Gladstone saw that his traditional principles and those of his party had broken down in any one direction, it was but natural that he should begin to question their endurance in other directions. The whole fabric of belief was built up together. 
Gladstone's was a mind of that order that sees a principle in everything, and must, to adopt the phrase of a great preacher, make the ploughing as much a part of religious duty as the praying. The interests of religion seemed to him bound up with the creed of conservatism. The principles of protection must probably at one time have seemed a part of the whole creed of which one article was as sacred as another. His intellect and his principles, however, found themselves compelled to follow the guidance of his leader in the matter of free trade, and when inquiry thus began, it was not very likely soon to stop. He must have seen how much the working of such a principle as that of protection became a class interest in England, and how impossible it would have been for it to continue long in existence under an extended and a popular suffrage. In other countries the fallacy of protection did not show itself so glaringly in the eyes of the poorer classes, for in other countries it was not the staple food of the population that became the principal object of a protective duty. But in England the bread on which the poorest had to live was made to pay a tax for the benefit of landlords and farmers. As long as one believed this to be a necessary condition of a great unquestionable creed, it was easy for a young statesman to reconcile himself to it. It might bear cruelly on individuals or even multitudes, but so would the law of gravitation, as Mill has remarked, bear harshly on the best of men when it dashed him down from a height and broke his bones. It would be idle to question the existence of the law on that account, or to disbelieve the whole teaching of the physical science which explains its movements. But when Mr. Gladstone came to be convinced that there was no such law as the protection principle at all, that it was a mere sham, that to believe in it was to be guilty of an economic heresy, then it was impossible for him not to begin questioning the genuineness of the whole system of political thought of which it formed but a part. Perhaps, too, he was impelled toward liberal principles at home by seeing what the effects of opposite doctrines had been abroad. He rendered memorable service to the liberal cause of Europe by his eloquent protest against the brutal treatment of Baron Poerio and other liberals of Naples who were imprisoned by the Neapolitan king, a protest which Garibaldi declared to have sounded the first trumpet call of Italian liberty. In rendering service to liberalism and to Europe, he rendered service also to his own intelligence. He helped to set free his own spirit as well as the Neapolitan people. We find him as his career goes on dropping the traditions of his youth, always rising higher in liberalism and not going back. One of the foremost of his compeers and his only actual rival in popular eloquence eulogized him as always struggling toward the light. The common taunts addressed to public men who have changed their opinions were hardly ever applied to him. Even his enemies felt that the one idea always inspired him, a conscientious anxiety to do the right thing. None accused him of being one of the politicians who mistake, as Victor Hugo says, a weathercock for a flag. With many qualities which seemed hardly suited to a practical politician, with a sensitive and eager temper like that of Canning, and a turn for a theological argument that as a rule Englishmen do not love in a statesman, with an impetuosity that often carried him far astray, and with a deficiency of those genial social qualities that go so far to make a public success in England, Mr. Gladstone maintained, through the whole of his career, 
a reputation against which there was hardly a serious cavil. The worst thing that was said of him was that he was too impulsive and that his intelligence was too restless. He was an essayist, a critic, a Homeric scholar, a dilettante in art, music, and old China. He was a theological controversialist. He was a political economist, a financier, a practical administrator whose gift of mastering details has hardly ever been equaled. He was a statesman and an orator. No man could attempt so many things and not occasionally make himself the subject of a sneer. The intense gravity and earnestness of Gladstone's mind always, however, saved him from the special penalty of such versatility. No satirist described him as not one, but all mankind's epitome. As yet, however, he is only the young statesman who was the other day the hope of the more solemn and solid conservatives, and in whom they have not even yet entirely ceased to put some faith. The coalition ministry was so formed that it was not supposed a man necessarily nailed his colors to any mast when he joined it. More than one of Gladstone's earliest friends and political associates had a part in it. The ministry might undoubtedly be called an administration of all the talents. Except the late Lord Derby and Mr. Disraeli, it included almost every man of real ability who belonged to either of the two great parties of the state. The Manchester School had, of course, no place there, but they were not likely just yet to be recognized as constituting one of the elements out of which even a coalition ministry might be composed. End of section 16